apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all the wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to, put, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in, con in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Um, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray first before we get into the word. Um, Father God, I thank you for this day that you have given us. I thank you for the love that you have graciously poured upon us. Lord, I pray that as we enter into a time of wrestling with your scripture, God, that you would open our hearts and you would open our ears. Lord, that we would be able to be sensitive to the voice of, of you calling. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the freedom to be a body together. Lord, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. So, if you can see this far, you might see a bowling ball that was so graciously donated to me by Helen Jones with... Pluto on it, so it's Pluto, it's real. Okay, the reason that I have a bowling ball is because it's going to serve as a little object lesson. When we look at these passages, this passage that we will be in this morning, we can fall into two gutters. We can, and if you've ever went bowling, you want to try to stay away from the gutters because gutters are not good. So either you learn and get better or you put the bumpers up and just deal with the, with the bumpers being there so you don't put it in the gutter. Um, so when you get bowling, like I said, you want to try to go up the middle. And as our church is so greatly structured, here's a gutter, here's a gutter, there's the middle. That's where you're trying to shoot for. So you're trying to shoot. Why we read this passage, what we're trying to do is stay away from Throwing the ball over here, which I'm not actually going to throw, throwing it over there, we want to go right up the middle. And what that means is that we allow God, the Spirit, to be our bumpers, and we read the passage for what it says, and we remember the context of what it's teaching. So with that, I'm going to kind of pick this up as we go on, so we remember 
to stay out of the gutters, and I'm going to share personal experiences of where I messed up and threw the ball in the gutter. So, um, so we see immediately once we start in verses 1 and 2, there's a point, there's a word that sticks out. Um, there's two words. Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Partly the reason that he does this is because he's giving himself the, or showing us the authority that he has to write this epistle, to write this letter. That he is not just some person that just wrote it. He is an apostle of Christ. He is somebody who has walked um, in the way of Christ and has encountered Christ and has learned intimately who Christ is. And so therefore, Paul being apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that is really important for us to get because it was not Paul's plan for Paul to be this writer and doing all this. It was God's plan. Um, if you're familiar with the apostle Paul, he had the Damascus Road conversion. He was on Damascus Road. He encounters God, draws him to his knees, and by the will of God, he becomes the apostle that we now see this morning. He also says to the saints in Ephesus, saints is a really crucial word because he addresses the body of believers that this letter is written to as saints. It's not a couple of us are saints, uh, none of us are saints, or the people that have went before us are saints. No, we are saints. And Paul addresses that in this when he starts off the epistle saying, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he extends his greeting that he uses in most of his epistles, grace and peace, from, to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What is important about these two verses is that we see there is a certain amount of intimacy and personal relationship that Paul comes into this. That he's not just coming from a perspective of things that he's learned, that he's teaching the church in Ephesus or whoever it may be later on. Um, he's not just teaching it. He's sharing his heart and the things that he's learned. And so as I say that, my encouragement is when I'm up here and I'm sharing this, this is a passage that I have wrestled with for my whole school year of this past year and is something that has greatly shaped the person that I am as I stand before you guys today. So that is getting into the text. Um, let's, let's get into the good stuff. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul goes straight to the point. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is an opening sentence. We see in here, the first thing that I want to point out is we see Paul making the distinction between the members of the Trinity, that they are equal in their godhood, but separate in their roles. It is crucial for us to approach that in a way that is um, accurate in seeing them as um, fully God. All members are full. The three parts have different roles. Same God. And so Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the distinction that Paul lays out. That we're praising God the Father and we're praising our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The spiritual blessing that we have in heaven is simply first our names written in the book of life and the redemption that we have received through Christ willingly offering himself up on the cross. 
Why is that important? Because then we see, and what Paul shows us, is that this spiritual blessing that we have is in heaven. I would not wish to have my spiritual blessing or my blessing here on earth because things perish. If my blessing is wrapped up in God's hands in heaven, it cannot be perished. It can't perish because it is eternal. Um, so like I said, we have the spiritual blessing that we receive in this text is our names written in the book of life and the redemption that we have received through Christ offering himself up for us. Our blessing that we have in Christ does not wither, it does not fade, and it does not perish because it's not in a place where it can. If we were the possessors of that gift, this spiritual blessing that we have received of these things, if we possessed them, we could lose them. They could perish. They could wither. But because they are in a place of eternity, they don't wither. They don't perish, and they're not lost. And so when we see that in there, which is why we see in verse 3, it says, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Maybe wondering why I emphasize the word in. The reason I emphasize it is because it's crucial to our understanding of this text. The text does not say out of Christ or from Christ. It says in Christ. What is important about that is because the basic laws of human nature suggest that if something is given out of or given from I then lose it as the giver. A practical example is if I have two oranges in my hand and I give somebody an orange, they are now the possessor of that orange. It is no longer mine. So the fate of that orange rests in that person's hands, not mine anymore as the giver. That is not what the text says. The text says, in Christ, which means that that blessing is not ours to possess. It's not ours to hold. What that means and why that is so good and awesome is because our gift that we've been giving does not depend on how tight I can hold, how much I can adhere to the law, how much I can do to appease this God. It doesn't rest in my hands. It rests in God's hands. So it moves us from a position of feeling like we have to hold on so tightly to the gift that we've been received or else it's going to perish. And it puts us on our knees and get, helps us to see the fact that we worship a God who possesses our very spiritual blessing, who possesses our life, and therefore it cannot be taken and it cannot perish at all. That is why Paul, I believe, says in Christ, because we have been wrapped up in Christ. We have been receivers of this blessing in Christ because he is the one who holds it. The word in, like I said, may seem small, but yet it has such a big significance. When we see our blessing as being in Christ, it offers us a picture that our blessing is not coming out of us and it is not it, ours to hold, as I said, it is held by Christ. When we envision God as the holder of our blessings, it moves us to a place of peace, knowing that nothing can be removed from his hands. It should move us to a position of peace when we see in verse 3 that Paul just gets in, that our gift, that our blessing is in his hands. 
peace is what Paul begins this passage with, of helping us to see that our Savior, fully God and thoroughly our King, possesses our spiritual blessing, possesses our very life in His hands. Then we get into verse 4 through 6. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. What I forgot to say is keep those Bibles open because we're going to be going back to those continually. Um, Verses 4 through 6. This is where this comes into play. Because we have one side that has spent, and I've been on both of these sides, that spends your whole entire time studying and coming up with the terms and coming up with logical reasons and ways that you can calculate it and put God in a nice box to where you think that you've figured out the sovereign election and predestination of God. And you, my friend, are a genius. And it leads you to great levels of pride and great closed-mindedness when you communicate. That's this side. Okay, we don't want to be over there. Then you have the ball over here where the side reads something like predestination and election, and because it's so deep, they go, I'm never going to figure this out. I don't know what this is saying. It's not fitting in with how I think, so I'm just going to stay at the surface and skip over it, and I'll read Ephesians 2 rather than Ephesians 1 because Ephesians 1 is hard to understand. So then we chuck the bowling ball over here. As opposed to admitting that I'm never going to place God in a box or have this sovereign will figured out, but also, what, simply, what good am I if I'm not going to wrestle with the word and allow God to form my conclusions? Which is why I bring this out, because my encouragement is, from somebody who's went to both of those gutters, it doesn't work. Because one side hardens God, the other side minimizes God. And so, no one ever gets a clear perspective of this God that we worship and proclaim. And so I bring this ball out as a vision to shoot down the middle of the aisle as we get into this point. And remember that I'm the first one raising my hand, that I have went in those gutters, and I have been guilty of those gutters, which means that we all relate in this area. Um, So we see that this letter is written to the church, those who are already in Christ. They are members of the body already. This passage teaches us the beauty behind the sovereignty of God in the process of taking a human who is dead in their sins and overwhelming their life with, overwhelming their soul with life. That alone could be something that you could ponder on for the rest of your life of how God takes, first of all, how we even get a dead heart, that whole process. And then taking that and wrestling on that, and then all of a sudden, okay, we take this dead light or this dead life. Now we have new life, all this, and this is what this passage talks about: that there is a deeper truth that it, that it is work with it, at work within this. The way of the cross is what this passage teaches: that we go from death to life which sets it apart from anything else that proclaims to be truth in our culture, in our world, because it is the only thing that goes from death to life. Uh, There's a quote by Martin Luther that I, I love, and he says, When God works in us, the will, being changed and sweetly breathed upon by the Spirit of God, 
desires and acts, not from compulsion, but responsively. The last statement, but responsively, is key to understanding this. That, in essence, what Martin Luther is saying is that God who is at work within us changes and breathes, upon, breathes the Spirit of God upon us, which then gets us to a point of seeing the need for God, which then pushes us to a point of responding in worship to the gift that we have been given, the gift that Paul talked about in verse 3. Now we're going to get into a key word in this passage that is going to cause some of us to go over here and some of us to go over here. The word is choose. Choose. We have been selected. In essence, this is what this verse means. We have been, that word, we have been selected, called, and set apart by God, for God, and with God. Let me say that again. We have been chosen We have been selected, called, and set apart by God, for God, and with God. That portrays a relationship that is intertwined within each other, that has a purpose and really leaves no room for pride. Really leaves no room for us to to say, well, I've been chosen. Sorry, you haven't been chosen, but that's not what Paul's getting at. The text shows us that before the foundations of the world, God the Father had us in mind, as well as others that have yet to respond to God. Until Christ comes back, and we see this later, that offer is still there. What we respond in that offer is key. Before the foundations of the world, that is the size of the God that we worship. That's the type of God when worshipped in in truth. That is the type of God that attracts people. That is the type of God that changes people. That is the type of God that can take that dead spirit and rush it with life. A God who before the foundations of the world, before any of this was made, before we were created, before we could do anything, chose us. How's that for a God? How's that for a father? That before you had any chance to mess up, He chose you. That is the Father that is being professed in verses 4 through 6. And what is even cooler about this passage is that it's not just we were chosen for salvation. No, we were chosen for much more than salvation. We were chosen to be holy and blameless. God does not save us and then leave us and say, okay, you got it, you were chosen. No, 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 God has so much more than that. So much more than to just be chosen and to sit in that and to, as Pastor Chris talks about, to just take your stamp and walk in. If you do that, you are missing the joy of worshiping this God and the relationship that comes through a father. We have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Something that came to my mind when I was in between services is it's taught in, it was taught in my theology class, there's a difference between progressive sanctification and positional sanctification. Essence, what that means is positionally, when God the Father looks at us, we are holy and blameless. We have no blemishes. We have no spots. We have no failures. We have no mistakes. When God the Father looks at us, we are holy and blameless. Positionally, that is our position. 
progressively, we are on a journey to becoming holy and blameless in our life. How do, you, how do we expect to be on a journey if we never get up and do it? How do we expect to be on a journey if we don't wrestle with these truths and wrestle with the fact that there is something more, there is something bigger, and that God doesn't just want us to be saved. No, he wants us to be cleansed. He wants us to reflect his image in entirety, not half. In entirety, he wants us to reflect that. And so when God looks at us, he says, you are mine, and not only are you, just, not only are you mine, but you are holy and blameless. This is a question of identity. Where do we see ourselves when we look at God? When we look at God, do we see ourselves in a constant state of trying to appease and follow the, follow the guidelines? Or do we look at ourselves as somebody who rests securely in the palm of God's hand? When we look in the mirror... Do we see blemishes? Do we see imperfections? Are we consumed with past mistakes? Are we controlled by our failures? God looks at us and, we, and he says, you are not the sum of your failures. You are not the sum total of your circumstances. You are not held in bondage to the past because when I look at you, you are holy and blameless. It fires me up because it takes me out of the position of feeling like I have to spend my whole life striving to please this God. But rather I can just say, I don't got it, but you do. We have been set free from the past for the purpose of walking confidently in our present. Let me say that again. We have been set free from the past for the purpose of walking confidently in the present. Do we get this? Do we, are we feeling what God is telling, what he is saying? That this is not what I see, but this is what I see. You are holy and blameless because the one who was those and is those has willed it before you were born. The reason we are holy, the reason we are blameless is not because, as we saw, as we're reading in Leviticus, not because we sacrificed a ram or brought a goat, not because of any of that, but because of the fact that we worship a God who is holy and blameless. Who then makes us holy and blameless? To be holy means to be cleansed from the bottom of your toes to the top of your head. To be blameless means that there is no reason and there is no fault found in you in the courtroom of God. That when he looks at you, you are forever declared innocent. To be holy means to be cleansed from the bottom of your toes to the top of your head. That is a whole cleansing that requires a lot of work and a lot of simply just inviting God into our, into our lives and allowing him to be part of it. If we received and lived out these two words in our life, that we are his holy children and we are his blameless children in his sight, the drastic changes that would happen in our character, our joy, our life, our evangelism, our worship, our teaching, 
if those two words alone were anything that we just, was the thing that we wrestled with for the rest of our life, that alone would bring us to a position of intimacy with God. God has created us to be holy and blameless. We are his children, his creation, the receivers of his perfect gift, and that leaves us in an eternal position now of being holy and blameless in his sight and a hope of continuing to be holy and blameless. The center of this choosing that we're taught in verse 5, which you see, it says, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons his, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The center of this whole entire passage of his election and his predestination is love. That is so crucial because if it's not in love, then you, I'm sorry, I'm not saying you fit into this category, but then you're throwing it over here and you're saying, well, I got mine, what's, what's in it for you? What? And I say what because that's something that I've done. <laughs> in love, he predestined us. The word predestined basically means to choose beforehand. We have been chosen beforehand as a child of God, and this is crucial to our worship. We cannot earn our childhood, we cannot maintain our childhood, and we can never terminate our childhood. Let me say that again because it's that crucial. We can never earn our childhood, we cannot maintain our childhood, and we cannot terminate our childhood because our childhood does not depend upon the blood of a human but on the blood of our perfect Savior. At this point, I'm reminded of the hymn, What Wondrous Love. And it says, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Last week we talked about, in Leviticus 16, we talked about the Day of Atonement. And we the, the picture that was painted was a scapegoat, that our sins were casted on this scapegoat and it ran away and we hoped the scapegoat didn't come back. But we were always looking over our shoulder wondering when is the scapegoat going to show up. What this verse teaches us and what this points at is the ultimate scapegoat is Jesus Christ on the cross and he bore the dreadful curse for our soul and therefore it ain't coming back. The scapegoat is gone, buried, not coming back at all. It's gone. That is the beauty behind 7 and 10, which we're going to read now. In him we have redemption through his blood for the, give, for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Martin Luther says, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. I want to share a story about that I, that I read in one of my, my notes, and it talks about a young African-American boy who goes into this church in the 50s and he says, and, and the pastor asks, how were you saved and when were you saved? The kid says, the, the child responds, I did my part and God did his. 
pastor says, what does that mean? Thinking that he had trapped him because he's over here in this gutter. Um, Thinking that he had trapped him. And he says, what does that mean? The kid looks at him and goes, I did the sinning part. God did the saving part. It's that simple. God does the saving. We do the sinning. The thing that I want to point out in this is the blood of Jesus Christ that has cleansed us through and through, that is, in the text as we read, lavished upon us. That means pouring out in abundance. That means that it's not something that is in short order or that needs to be, we need to put it in order to get it because it's out of stock. No, it means it just keeps flowing. The picture that I want us to see is if you've ever been whitewater rafting, level five rapids, they're powerful. You cannot get out of them. You have to find something to grab on because you can't swim out of them. That is the power of God that I want us to see. That is the blood of Jesus Christ that I wish for us to worship. That it sweeps us up, takes us down the river, and all we can do is go with it because it is that powerful. And it pushes us towards his presence. The blood of Jesus Christ, what more can I offer this world? What more can I proclaim than that? That there is a Savior who has shed his blood voluntarily for you. What more can I give than than that fact? We see that there is a will, that there is a purpose for what God is doing in this. It is calculated, it is discerning, and it has order. The will of God is good, and it is purposed in the fulfillment of Christ's left, Life, death, and resurrection. That is what this verse, these three verses teach about. It talks about, and I love verse 7, in him we have redemption through the blood. What? In him we have redemption through the blood. That, that is, that's probably the greatest sentence ever penned. The will of God is revealed with wisdom and understanding, meaning that God's goal is not for us to blindly believe, but to search and see that the will of God is revealed to us in our daily lives if we just ask. That's the key. And it doesn't mean, and I fall into this because it's my generation, it doesn't mean ask, and if you don't get it in 20 seconds, that you just stop and you think that God doesn't want to reveal it, because that's not how he works. God reveals this mystery because what good is it for me to worship somebody who I don't even know, who I don't even figure out? Why would I worship him if I don't know who he is? He reveals this mystery. Friends, I've seen the way that God has taken a life who still is on the process, has not figured it out, but has has looked at their identity and has seen themselves positionally as holy and blameless And I've seen the power of the blood of Jesus Christ work in that. And I've seen it firsthand, especially at my school. Because we have been a a lot, especially the men of God that are there, the young men. I cannot explain what is going on with them. Of the fact that they are learning that in the stuff that they carry in of those things, that they are holy and blameless and that they are wrapped up and consumed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they can walk confidently into this world sharing the truth that has been given. We ask, then we listen, and God does not withhold from us. 
put it into an extreme perspective. If he withheld when he was on the cross, where would we be? Withholding is not in his business. God doesn't do that. That's not in his character. God is a God who pursues and offers all of himself. With that, my encouragement is on this part, looking in the mirror, why do we think it's okay to offer half of ourself to God? Why? Why do we, looking in the mirror, putting myself in those shoes, that if God has given everything that he has, why is it okay, or why do I think it's okay for me to give half of what I have? That is everything. That did everything. And all it requires is a yielded heart and an open, or a yielded spirit and an open heart. That's what God wants. When we read the Apostle Paul, he's just a man. But all he did, but what he did differently was he said, You can have my heart and my spirit is yielded to you. That is what he requires, and that is why he has predestined us to be chosen as holy and blameless, and doesn't just leave us where we're at because. With that, it moves us into a position of offering ourselves to God in the way that we were created in a form of worship. Um, Verses 11 through 14. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We place our hope in Christ for the purpose of showing the glory of God and nothing else. That is it. Our hope is placed in God because it shows the glory of God in the way that he pursues us in an intimate way. The purpose behind this mystery that is taught is that we are on the process of being conformed, that we are being maintained, that we are being sustained, not by anything that we have done, but by the, by the will of the God we worship. Verse 13 then tells us that we are no accident, that we did not enter into this choosing accidentally, but that there was a well-calculated plan and that he was not surprised when we entered The last part of this chapter, we're introduced to God the Holy Spirit and his role. Without getting too deep what this verse is talking about, and I would encourage you to read about it later because it's really cool, it's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that that sets us apart at the moment that we we converge. Wait, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, The moment that we accept Christ, we'll go with that. Um, We then are given God in his entirety, not half. All of God is given to us at that moment. That is huge because the Holy Spirit provides us the practical example of how this works out. Without the Holy Spirit, what is the point of worship? Without the Holy Spirit, how do I even have the ability to know that I need to worship, to know that I'm dead in my sins? The Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in this to carrying out of this eternal plan. Because without him, there's no wheels on the boat. Or there's no wheels on the car. There's no wheels on a boat. We don't want that. Um, (laughs) The Holy Spirit teaches us, speaks to us, molds us, conforms us, encourages us, relates to us, feels for us, 
prays for us. All of those things he does for us on a continual basis. And if you saw it in there, it says in the Holy Spirit. Once again, we have in. That it's not coming out of and it's not, that we don't possess it. That we're, that we're in the Holy Spirit. Paul provides us this answer in saying that our conscience bears witness to the truth of God within us. Without the role of the Holy Spirit, we would have no hope. We would be worshiping a dead religion and we would be unable to see the need to worship God. The very fact that we worship a living God is what sets us apart from anything else that claims to be true. The Holy Spirit and his sealing transforms us. The Holy Spirit serves as a witness not only to the gift of God, but is the medicine to our sick souls. We are by nature spiritually bankrupt, and without the application of the blood that the Holy Spirit wills in that eternal plan, we are forever bankrupt, and we are hopeless in this life. The Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance because he knows the plan and is the very presence of God. When we come to this passage and we see this, my prayer is that we would not only go back to the text and wrestle with this throughout the week, but my prayer is that we would begin seeing ourselves as holy and blameless in the sight of God, but we would see it in a position of actually doing something about that. Because this world is crying out for someone to say that. This world is crying out to have someone say that you are not the sum total of your circumstances, that there is a hope, that there is something more. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We do it corporally. And that is everything that Pastor Chris has been trying to embody in his sermons. That we, through having an intimate relationship with God, we then become intimate with each other, which then unites us as a front who can proclaim a message that we read this morning. All is for the glory of God in this plan. And it is bigger and it is better and it is deeper than anything that we will ever be able to comprehend. But it drives us to worship and it drives us to intimacy with God and it drives us to better serve this God together as his body, as his family, as children who are holy and blameless. Let me pray and then Drew will lead us in the time of worship. Father God, I thank you for this morning that you have given us I thank you for your love that you have graciously poured upon us. Lord, I ask that you would be the author of our souls anew this morning. Lord, may it be in this time, of, may this time be a place of worship with you. Whether it be with song, word, shouting, clapping, a posture, silence, whatever it may be, God, enable us and move us to a deeper and more intimate worship with you. God, we worship you. We thank you. And we give you all the praise and give you all the glory. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.